politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR podcast. Those of you looking to fight for liberty, you have found the right place. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. CR podcast back in the house today, Tuesday, July 27th. And it's kind of hard for me to up the ante from yesterday's show. I was so upset I lost my voice. I'm not any less upset today. I'm just kind of tired, so less energy. But just before recording the show, CDC comes out with the recommendation bringing back the mask mandate indoors. And I warned you guys. I warned you guys that this wasn't over. That until we established in state law that this is prohibited, they're going to bring it back. In Huntsville, Alabama, Savannah, Georgia, southern cities, they're bringing it back. Not even such large cities. So, they now benefit from the fruits of their lies. They lied about the efficacy of masks. Never worked, so they needed the clot shots. Now the clot shots don't work, so they're saying we're bringing back the mask. Well, mind you, saying the clot shots do work and don't work at the same time. So you better get both, the clot shot and the mask. Maybe Robert Redfield was right when he said masks work better than vaccines, at least this vaccine. Although zero and zero is kind of the same, but you get my point. So we're going to have Dr. Robert Malone, the man who actually helped patent and invent mRNA vaccines. He knows a thing or two about them to discuss some of the concerns about it. But what we're seeing, what we have seen, the last year and a couple months, is that not only has their garbage failed to stem the tide of the virus while causing immeasurable physical, financial, and emotional damage to civilization, but they've actually managed to actualize and exacerbate the death toll on both sides of the ledger, meaning the side effects of what they've done and COVID itself. And we've explained that very often with how they've locked people down, their vitamin D levels have gone down, their exercise levels have gone down, their anxiety has gone up. All ways of making people more vulnerable to the virus, as well as blocking life-saving treatments, the only things that have proven to work. So who's to say the same isn't true with the vaccine? That not only does it have side effects and doesn't work nearly as much as they said it does, but perhaps it's actually making the epidemiological trajectory of the virus worse than it would have been had it been left alone. So we're going to delve into that science later today with um, you know, our, uh, our resident expert here, Dr. Malone. But I also want to touch on just some things before we bring him on the show today. You know, Israel... July 26th, 2020, last year, was 0% vaccinated. They had about 1,270 cases. Fast forward a year, July 26th, that's yesterday, 2021, they had 2,065 cases. So there's actually more cases in Israel today, many more cases than there was a year ago. 
Now, you could yelp K-STEMIC all you want, and we actually agree with that, then the scheme of things, it's not a level of a pandemic anymore in terms of those getting critically ill. But again, among the percentage of people in the ICU, 70% of them had the shots. And this is where Times of Israel comes in, the big news article from yesterday, if you haven't seen it, early vaccines are twice as likely to catch COVID as later recipients. And basically, the Israeli government is now suggesting that the efficacy wears off about six months later. And they're not just saying that it's wearing off, but they're specifically saying that it's those that got the first tranche of shots are the ones that don't have efficacy. And their big headline number is from the Health Ministry of Israel that people vaccinated in January were said to have just 16%, 16% protection against infection now. While in those vaccinated in April, effectiveness was 75%. The Leomit study looked only at the apparent waning of protection over time and divided the vaccinated population into two based on inoculation dates, comparing early vaccinators to late vaccinators. Shinar, head of Loomis Labs, acknowledged that the early vaccinators group includes many people who race to get shots because they have underlying illnesses, which may make them more vulnerable, vulnerable to infection. But he said that that could not fully account for the stark effect seen in the data. So there's a, a waning duration. And, you know, again, the, the, we talked about this yesterday, the sophistry. Well, Daniel, the numbers are so low of the ab- absolute numbers of people who die and, and, and are hospitalized at this point. So you can't draw too many conclusions. Well, yeah, but dude, this ain't what we were promised. Okay. You know, oh, you know, it doesn't prove, you know, it could still be effective. Well, Daniel, even if, if it's 97% effective, well, you know, it still could have, with such small numbers, the 3% could account. Yeah, but according to you, if you're not vaccinated, it's 0% effective. So why would we see the share of that pie like that? This is not what we were promised. The Israelis are openly saying you need a third booster, and they said it's for all age groups. Early vaccinators were 1.95 times more likely to be confirmed coronavirus positives than the later ones among those age 60 plus. It was twice as much for those age 40 to 59. It was 2.1 times, and among those under 39, it was 1.6 times more likely. So pretty much the same across all age groups. So it turns out after incurring experimental risks and all those people who died, permanent disabilities, the heart ailments, turns out they feel you get five to six months of protection. Isn't it funny how everything they projected on natural immunity, everything they said about about our strategy, actually applies to them, a true blood libel. It is their vulnerabilities. And yet we are to believe that somehow in America, it's 99% effective. Really? What's so funny, it's actually hilarious, the Illinois government put out data and they said they count COVID hospitalizations among vaccinated pursuant to CDC guidelines. Huh. Well, CDC guidelines are a joke. There's a number of things going on. Number one, they're counting all deaths since January. Okay. 
January and February had the most deaths. And mind you, they're a lot from November and December because we don't know when people died. We know when it's reported. That predated the vaccines. The fewest people have died recently because mainly in the spring and early summer, we tend not to really get much COVID. And that was true before the vaccines. So they're like, oh, you know, almost everyone who died wasn't, wasn't vaccinated. Well, yeah, I mean... That predated most of it. And by the way, my buddy Justin Hart put out great charts showing that the case drop in America was 75% for every age group before any group hit 20% vaccination. It was all seasonal. He has beautiful charts out. This whole thing was a lie. It never dropped because of the vaccine. So the going up is not because of not vaccinated. And then, again, I I cannot underscore this. They're continuing to mandate masks when they've proven to be 0% effective while mandating vaccines now when they themselves are saying it's not effective to stopping and protecting the other guy. It only protects yourself. It doesn't, but at least after six months. But they they claim it does, but who cares? But they, they, they like to tell us, no, 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 Daniel. We, we never said that it was effective. Well, so then why are you mandating? But it's not true. Times of Israel, you go back to January 28th. The Israelis were very proud of this. Vaccine found 92% effective in Israel and first controlled results outside of the trials. By the way, Pfizer bought up all of Israel's data. They're, they're thick as thieves. Only 31 out of 163,000 Israelis vaccinated were diagnosed with COVID. In the first day, first 10 days of full strength protection. So they were trying to say diagnosed, meaning infection, 92% effective. That's what they were saying. Don't lie and say you only said for critical illness. So they lied about everything until now with mass and the mode of transmission, who's vulnerable and the way to treat it. And they lied about the efficacy of stopping infection, but they're totally telling the truth about the efficacy against critical illness. Really. Totally believable. Totally believable. Truly a bunch of sickos. And here we are with one state after another You have these cities going back into panic mode. But again, folks, the important thing about us getting in their face, I can't underscore enough how we need to assert our will. DeWine in Ohio was recently asked about a mask mandate, and he basically said, now this could change with the CDC now. This is very fluid as of, you know, 11.30 a.m. Eastern time today. But I will tell you, he said, look, the people don't really have an appetite for it. So if we assert our will, it does make a difference. And often we don't. But there is an emergency need right now to force red states to immediately convene their legislature, convene on treatment, ending remdesivir. We're not paying for it at a state Medicaid funding. And to push ivermectin over the counter, or at least to push it as guidelines for doctors to prescribe and hospitals to use and to immediately 
criminalize the implementation of CDC's mask mandate by any so-called private or public actor within the state. It is abuse. It violates human rights to enforce a mask mandate. Okay, that immediately needs to occur in the states. The time has come. The time has come. Now, as we strategize about how to get together and work these state legislatures, work our local politics, one great way to get together and try to um, form some of these groups that we're trying to form is to come to our get-togethers at Frontsite Nevada under constitutioncoach.com's terrific constitution and defensive handgun training, both. Uh, Pahrump, Nevada, it's the site of Front Sight's uh, state-of-the-art training camp. Uh, they offer the best two-day and four-day defensive handgun training. I will be out at the October 31st training, but if you go to constitutioncoach.com, you'll see there's several dates in the fall that might work for you when the weather does cool off there in the desert. Uh, our buddy Rick Green of Patriot Academy gives a constitution class at night. Um, I lecture a little bit as well. And during the day, it's all day on the range, learning how to draw from a holster, um, feel comfortable carrying a gun, shooting, clearing malfunctions, and most of all, meeting terrific, terrific patriots from this audience and around the country. I myself will be there October 31st. So again, sign up at constitutioncoach.com. 90% off Front Sight's typical training. Four-day course is usually 2000 bucks. It's just $150 plus the cost of your accommodations and ammo, which unfortunately is a lot of money these days. Um, but it is go- coming down a little bit. So again, constitutioncoach.com, our sponsor today. Now, folks, before I get to our guest, I just want to make a point that I hadn't made. I forgot to mention before. President Biden said yesterday, he announced that the long-term effects of COVID could be considered a disability under the ADA, Americans with Disability Act. And... You know, aside from the absurdity that a likely 150, 160 million, you know, give or take, have likely gotten the virus, so that's just insane. It's half the country. But isn't it interesting how the very people that violate the ADA with COVID, that they say that you are allowed to mandate someone cover their breathing orifices regardless of their conditions, regardless of, of you know, what they're about, violate medical privacy, suddenly... They use the ADA when it when it uh, services them. It's just amazing the ability of the left to turn on and off the faucet as needed. They don't have any principle. So they could go violating it for an entire year, and then they'll look you in the eye and bring it back when they need it. It's a similar point I saw yesterday. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have this in front of me now. But it was on a podcast, so I don't think there's a link to this on the web. And I'll have to get this for you guys. If you go into my Twitter yesterday, you could probably find it. And I'm forgetting the doctor. He was a British doctor that does a show. He does a lot of ivermectin shows. And he had a screenshot. So you saw one of the FOIA emails. Remember, a lot of Fauci's emails were released. And there was this doctor who asked Fauci, hey... You know, you mentioned the other day that you take vitamin D supplements. It was just in jest. It's not like he got up there and told everyone to take vitamin D. Someone asked him, he was like, yeah, yeah, I take supplements. And then that was it. So they asked how much, and he said 6,000 IUs. It's in a confirmed email, 6,000 IUs. Mind you, in the multivitamins, you usually get 800. 
is their daily recommendation. 6,000. Imagine if every senior would have been taking 6,000 IUs a day for 17 months. How many fewer deaths and hospitalizations we would have had. Truly, truly disgusting. A new study out, you know, that analyzed 13 other studies of 14,000 patients. They compared vitamin D levels um, when they were hit with the virus and the outcomes. And they and this is American researchers, Polish, European, all over, a uh, collection of a lot of different researchers. Low serum vitamin D levels are statistically significantly associated with the risk of COVID-19 infection. Supplementation of vitamin D, especially in the deficiency risk groups, is indicated. And again, to this day, nobody is informing the public other than people that are already clued into this, which is really a small minority. So this is truly sick. So we're living in a time of fascism when everything that would work, they're blocking and censoring. Everything that doesn't work and harms us and might also exacerbate the flow of the virus as well, they're promoting. And what is the red state Republican response? Join in on the fascism. Folks, I want you to take a listen to Mike Lee's hostage tape. They're all putting out this tape. Suddenly, Mike Lee barely has said anything about COVID. Not nearly as aggressive as Rand Paul. Barely said anything about the fascism, this and that. The one thing God opens the mouth of the donkey, here's what he has to say. Take a listen. Hi, I'm Senator Mike Lee. Your medical decisions are private. They should never be mandated by the government. And they're important personal choices to be made by you in consultation with your doctor. As we make strides to beat the pandemic, let me share with you why I chose to get the COVID vaccine. I caught COVID back in October of 2020, and that's an experience that I hope not to repeat. I didn't want to get COVID again. And so after the miraculous development of the vaccines, and after consulting with my doctor, I decided that it'd be the best choice for me to get the vaccine. Now, this isn't always an easy decision, and we should all be gracious to those around us who may decide to do differently than we do. But I encourage you to talk to your doctor and determine the best course of action for yourself and your family. Could you believe that, folks? Where is his evidence? No nuance, no truth, nothing. Every time that we need reinforcements to fight a battle on the issue of our time, Boom. Nowhere to be seen. Mike Lee, we're told, is a libertarian type of Republican. Really? Interesting. Liberty. Huh. That's nice. But this this is where we are with Republicans. Utter freaking liars. Why not put out public service on vitamin D, Mike Lee, and ivermectin? How about that? But no, I mean, this is sweeping throughout all the red states, all the Republicans promoting this. And mind you, there's so much garbage going on. Do you know that every time someone is unvaccinated, they test them? So if they're positive, that's a COVID hospitalization of an unvaccinated person, even if he's there for a kidney stone. Whereas if they're vaccinated, they're not tested. That's another trick. In the UK, in general, they found that over half of the COVID hospitalizations tested positive after admission. 
You know what that means. <laughs> if you test positive after admission, that means that you weren't admitted for it. Huge scandal. One after another, we're being lied to. Now, folks, I think this is a perfect time to bring on our special guest today. We're talking about this phenomena we've seen throughout the year, where not only have all their non-pharmaceutical interventions and even pharmaceutical interventions failed to stop the virus, not only has their strategy harmed people with so many side effects from the lockdowns, the emotional, financial, physical harm, but also how it's likely made people more vulnerable to COVID as well. And we've, we've talked about that with locking down people, having their vitamin D levels plummet, more anxiety, less exercise, um, you know, indiscriminately lumping in all cases rather than focusing on critical cases and people that need attention. So, you know, you have the hospitals being flooded with people that really shouldn't have been there, should have been treated outpatient. There's many examples we can go on and on about how their very strategy not only wasn't worth it, not only failed, had a lot of side effects, but actually likely exacerbated COVID itself, the um, death toll from COVID. You go on to the vaccine and you begin to wonder, are we seeing a similar dynamic? That not only are they covering up a lot of side effects, not only does it really seem to have stopped the trajectory where it was headed anyway, like we noted, 75% of the drop in late winter, early spring occurred before we even hit 20% vaccination. It was all seasonal, so the rise now was kind of bound to happen. But the question I want to explore with our next guest today, is there a possibility that the vaccination strategy might have made it worse. Last time we had Dr. Robert Malone on, he's the inventor of mRNA vaccines, scientist with really specialties in all areas that are important here, virology, immunology, molecular biology. Um, this is the type of guy you'd want to bring in to discuss a vaccine. And last time we spoke a lot about the concern of the nature of this vaccine, the spike protein, what it is, how it works, why they chose to develop the vaccine this way, and what are the concerns about it, what wasn't studied properly in the animal studies. Again, when you say, are you pro-vax or anti-vax, it's, it's a quite a cloddish and sophomoric uh, designation because it's like saying, are you pro or anti fat and calories? Well, you know, what type for whom over what time, what circumstances, the, the details matter. But then there's the other half I want to explore today, which is the circumstances through which you are vaccinating. And another concern aside from the nature of the vaccine with the spike protein was that we've never really vaccinated, mass vaccinated indiscriminately through a pandemic itself while that particular virus was still circulating. And there's something, a phenomenon known as antibody-dependent disease enhancement, where vaccinating during the time of circulation could actually help the mutations evade the, the, the efficacy of, of the vaccine, but also make it even worse that those people wind up getting more illness um, because we have antibody-producing vaccines that produce antibodies, but not quite enough. Now, with me right now is none other than Dr. Malone to explain what I cannot give over more effectively than any anyone. Dr. Malone, thanks so much for joining us again. My pleasure. I don't know. Antibody-dependent enhancement is a really complicated multifactorial topic in vaccinology. And by the way, it's 
the one thing that all vaccinologists are frightened silly about. It, this is this is the phenomena that goes back. It first really raised its head in vaccinology during the 60s when the respiratory syncytial virus vaccine developed for children, when it was tested in the field, turned out to cause more childhood deaths than uh, the placebo group, the unvaccinated group. So antibody-dependent enhancement, what does that mean? Antibodies have a an interesting structure. If you think about them like a fork, the tines of the fork are the things that bind to the target. So this could be the antibody, I mean, the, uh, the virus. The handle of the fork also has function. And it has uh, protein sequences that are recognized by specific receptors on immune cells, particularly cells involved in presenting antigen to B and T cells. So these are dendritic cells, macrophage, monocytes, and these migratory cells that are responsible for cleaning up the mess in a kind of a nonspecific way after there's been an infection. So antibodies have uh, variable regions at the fork end, the tine end, that bind things. And at the handle end, they also have things that bind but they bind to specific receptors on other cell types. And these other cell types usually don't get readily infected by a virus. They, in many cases, don't have receptors that would normally bind viruses because that's their job is to clean up the mess after a virus infection. What happens with certainly one of the best characterized types of antibody-dependent enhancement of disease is that this, these antibodies, and remember antibodies aren't just one thing. You don't just have one antibody. You have a whole swarm of different antibodies. You could think of it like a swarm of bees, but each bee has a slightly different sting. And some of those stings work really good at killing the virus or killing virus infected cells. And some of them, um, you know, kind of glance off and, and don't really do the job. But all of them, when you test them by crude assays like the enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, the ELISAs that we hear about, those tend to, to capture all antibodies, both the good ones, the stings that can kill, and the not-so-good ones, the stings that can bind the virus but don't really knock it out. The problem is the ones that usually the ones that can bind the virus but not really knock it out represent the majority of the antibodies. Furthermore, those ones that can bind the virus but not really knock it out still have the ability to bind to macrophage monocytes and these other cells. And what they can do is to facilitate the virus infecting those cells that otherwise it wouldn't. So that's the essence. I hope that was that's an attempt to make antibody-dependent enhancement at least one one version of it, one well-characterized mechanism by which this happens, to be hoping to make it understandable by using a fork metaphor. Now, why does it matter? Um, all coronavirus vaccines up until the recent present have run aground based on complications having to do with antibody-dependent enhancement, making the disease worse. There's two exceptions that were developed 
for veterinary applications that I know of uh, historically after much experimentation and a novel delivery strategy was used. And in the case of bovine coronavirus and feline infectious peritonitis virus, there have been coronaviruses vaccines that have been developed that were effective and didn't weren't overwhelmed by antibody-dependent enhancement. But all, all of the SARS vaccine candidates and the MERS vaccine candidates pretty much universally had this problem, which is why a lot of people were wary, including myself, with this push to develop these new vaccines for this coronavirus. It seems that the vaccines that have been developed for this coronavirus have been so potent, so powerful in generating good antibodies as well as cytotoxic T lymphocytes that after they have been administered and for a period of time, they're able to overcome any of these risks of antibody dependent enhancement and provide real benefits in terms of death and disease for people that are at high risk for death or disease. That's what the data seem to indicate. So in other words, they, they, However, they were just just to before you go on. So my audience is able to follow this, that there's this weak stage. There's this middle ground where it could be worse than having nothing, where you produce antibodies, but not enough potency where it could almost serve as a conduit for the virus to latch on and go the other way rather than the virus getting killed. Uh, there could be more infectivity. So their thought originally was, no, they, they cracked the code where they're going to give enough potency that it's going to go straight away and kill the virus. Well put. Very good. Um, I've, I've succeeded. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, so, so you've got the idea. And in general, what we have, one of the consequences of rushing everything is there's been a lot of assumption of the best case scenario. And we haven't had time to see what happens on the other side of the curve. So we've been very focused on reaching on the curve from unvaccinated to peak immune response. And that is encouraging what we see there at rapid onset. It's really a booster response built on top of the prior coronavirus natural immunity that comes from the circulating coronaviruses. They come up really fast. They come up strong. And they seem to be really good at protecting against death and disease in the short term. Now we come to the recent Israeli data. We had a concerted push that was extremely successful in Israel to vaccinate everybody in a short period of time. Not literally everybody, but a very large fraction of the population. And now we're six months or beyond for most of those people from when they were vaccinated and we have a new, you know, slightly genetically different variant of the virus that's circulating. And what we, the data indicated as of, you know, a few weeks ago, the, the signals in the data, as determined by Pfizer, seem to indicate that that immunity was waning. So our, the technical term is it has poor durability. The durability of protection is maybe about six months at the most. And so there was a push by Pfizer that we need to start revaccinating. And my understanding, boosting, in other words, getting the third shot. And my understanding is that that's now uh, increasingly the position of the Israeli government that this is going to be necessary. 
we had the initial reaction from Dr. Fauci saying that, no, Pfizer didn't have any justification for saying this. And now there's been another flip-flop, and the U.S. government is saying, at a minimum, that we are likely to have to vaccinate the elderly and the immunocompromised, so the people at highest risk of disease, with a third dose, particularly of Pfizer, because that's where most of the Israeli data come from, is the Pfizer shot. So um, this, the, you know, the, the data are imperfect. They're flawed. They're raw data coming out of Israel. They haven't been corrected. And there are, are artifacts in the data having to do with these complications of overcounting uh, based on, on hospital practices. And all of that's going to have to be corrected. But right now we have the raw data. That's what we have to work with. And the raw data is clearly demonstrating that there's a large number of infections, a, I should say, a substantial number of people that have been previously vaccinated in Israel are being reinfected. And of those, a small fraction are ending up being hospitalized. And in the raw data, what is being observed is that the fraction of patients that are being hospitalized that have received vaccine is about the same or perhaps a little bit more than the fraction that have received that the, the fraction hospitalized are about the same or a little bit more as the fraction that have received vaccine. Sure. So on the surface, on average, it doesn't seem to be much benefit in terms of hospitalization or severe hospitalized disease in having been vaccinated versus not having been vaccinated. Well, or at least after, after I guess, to get into the details, what they seem to be suggesting is at least after maybe four to six months. Precisely. Um, thank you for the correction. And because and, uh, and, so that, that, that fits in with your the, what, what you're saying, right, that that it might you might have had that, you know, the way I'm picturing is like, you know, the, these antibodies running around, you had that critical level. So you're saying there's the risk when you're going up the curve. Well, maybe the virus could latch on when it's not enough, but you're saying it goes up pretty quickly. There might be a short window it could get you, and there is a little bit of evidence some talk about maybe after the first shot. You've seen in some areas a spike in COVID actually from that. But you, what you're saying is more concerning is on the way down when you start losing the antibodies, it's a slow bleed. Did I get that right? Yeah, and so that means there's a longer window of time where you have this imbalance of protective antibodies versus non-protective antibodies that still bind the virus. And because it's a slow taper, that's a, a relatively long period of time. And that's precisely when vaccinologists and infectious disease specialists would uh, expect the risk of antibody-dependent enhancement to be highest. And the fact that we're seeing with vaccines that previously have been shown to be quite protective against death and disease and severe disease in the hospital. So previously they had that. And yet now we're seeing in these people that were vaccinated six months or more before, we're seeing them developing at a relative rate um, about the same uh, frequency of, of hospitalization or hospitalization with severe disease that on a crude level that they have in the overall population. That should be the case. We should see an imbalance 
with relatively more people from the unvaccinated cohort based on their fraction of the overall population than we would see with the vaccinated. Uh, the vaccinated should be, you have to adjust for how many, there's many more vaccinated people than there are unvaccinated people. And yet we're seeing a parallelism between the fraction in the population that are vaccinated and the fraction coming into the hospital that have severe disease. So that, that either means the vaccine has absolutely no effect on anybody in general uh, or, or in this fraction that develops disease, it's not providing additional protection compared to unvaccinated, or it means that there's something going on here that looks like it could be antibody-dependent enhancement that's increasing for those that become infected their their relative probability of developing severe disease. The other thing that uh, antibody-dependent enhancement, if it's occurring, would predict is that those that are presenting to the hospital that were previously vaccinated should have much higher levels of virus in their body, more viral replication, higher titers is the technical term, than was seen in people who are not vaccinated. Right now, I haven't seen those data, but in general, the reports are that the Delta variant, when it's infecting, is associated with much higher titers. Much higher titers is what you would find if antibody-dependent enhancement was happening in a fraction of patients. So right now, I don't want to, I'm not in any way saying antibody-dependent enhancement is for sure happening. Sure. But I'm saying that this is when we would see it. And there's some ghosts in the data suggesting it might be happening. And, and this was warned about that when you have an ongoing pandemic while it's circulating, because um, the what I've seen from other doctors that kind of shared this concern is that, look, you know, if you're going to vaccinate, maybe limit it to the people who need it the most. But if you're going to do it so widespread, so you explained how um, antibody-dependent disease enhancement would work in an individual, the individual body. But could you explain on a macro level, if this thesis is coming true here, would that mean that this will wind up elongating the pandemic, that without it, it would have burned out quicker, but now, in fact, it elongated it, and if the response is going to be get a third shot, we're going to continue chasing our tail, and it's going to go on and on? Yeah, so that's that's a, a a bona fide risk and concern. That doesn't mean it's going to happen for sure. I don't want to be an alarmist. But if everybody is, if a large fraction is simultaneously vaccinated, that creates a selective pressure on the virus. The virus isn't intelligent, but it generates a heck of a lot of offspring for any one infectious particle. And those offspring have a fairly high mutation rate because it's an RNA virus. And so any, select, any selective pressure on the virus will result in the virus changing in subtle ways genetically. And uh, if that selective pressure is produced by a given vaccine, as a, 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 you know, or if it's produced by natural infection, the virus will evolve to escape that pressure. And so uh, vaccination in our case, involves only one antigen. It's not very broad, as opposed to natural infection, 
where the body is exposed to all of the proteins of the virus and generates immune responses against many of them. In the case of vaccination, the focus is on a single protein, and it's more straightforward for the virus to evolve to escape that pressure on a single, pro single protein. So what you would expect is the development just from first principles, the development of viral escape mutants that are resistant to the antibodies that are produced by that particular vaccine. And in fact, there was a study done by the uh, famous Italian virologist, Rino Rapulli and his colleagues in Italy uh, that could recapitulate this in cell culture where you could take antiserum from vaccinated people put it in cell culture, co-culture with the virus, and you would generate escape mutants that were resistant to that antibody preparation from vaccinated people. So this is standard stuff. It's exactly what you'd expect. And if you're generating resistant mutants from the virus under the selection of the vaccine, what you'll get is antibodies that might bind to a spike but spike may have evolved in subtle ways so that those antibodies aren't fully blocking. Well, antibodies that bind but aren't fully blocking are exactly the antibodies that would be predicted to enhance infection into these other cell types and generate an antibody-dependent enhancement-like signal. So this logic that is being promoted that the mutants that are of concern are coming from the people that are unvaccinated that actually doesn't withstand scrutiny by a you know anybody yeah. trained in virology the risk is highest when with the people that have been vaccinated those are the ones that are going to be generating it and so it makes a lot of sense to only vaccinate the ones that are at highest risk because we don't want to just let old people die and, yep. and obese people. And, and it's not um, just the, you're, you're not saying it's not just the, the risk. Population. It's not just the myocarditis and the side effects, the risk benefit analysis on an individual level, you know, that obviously if you're younger, you're, you're not really um, too much at risk for the virus. And certainly if you're very young, so why there risk the population based risk having to do with selection yes. of vaccine? You're, you're, you're giving a macro argument, a macro argument that, if you know, let, let, let's say the the, the vaccine was a hundred percent safe, you know, had no um, no known side effects. But putting that on a shelf for a minute, just the fact, just just to in general vaccinate people that you don't need to in middle of the circulation of the virus, you're saying this would always pose that risk of ADE and actually help and that the is, virus strengthen. That is one of the key arguments that Gert Bosch makes quite eloquently, more eloquently than I can. Um, this is the Dutch virologist that has been speaking out about this problem, is if you vaccinate into an ongoing pandemic, then you will generate these uh, vaccine-driven escape mutants. It's just a fact. It's, it's fundamental evolutionary and, biology. And, and the reason why this resonates with me I didn't understand this when, when he was talking about that. I was like, ho-hum, okay, I mean, it's over my head. But when, there were two things that really stuck out to me. One is everyone said this over a year ago. I mean, when they wanted to panic us, the same players, you know, because they wanted to demonstrate that there's no hope, there's nothing, you got to lock down. So they said, and, and vaccines are very difficult for coronaviruses because they tend to mutate a lot. That was standard dogma in the media. Um, and then number two 
when I started to see Malta and Gibraltar and seashells and and a couple places in Latin America that had very high rates of vaccination and they had the highest per capita spreads at the various periods. And then we saw the UK and Israel, which again in the Western world were pretty much at the top, had almost their entire adult population, certainly senior population. I was like, wait a minute, you know, that's not what we were told would happen. Yeah, maybe it's lower than last year and a little bit lower, but that's likely because of attenuation, built up immunity, half the people already got it. So it's always going to go down in that respect. But wait a minute, that's a lot more than we would have expected from countries like that. And that's why now that I'm hearing this um, this theory and vaccination and immunology, just to, to a layman's mind, it seems to to jive. And what my concern is that they didn't properly study this. In the remaining few minutes, I want to juxtapose this to another thing that wasn't studied, kind of going back to the micro concerns of risks to the individual from the spike protein. You were quoted yesterday, and I want to just give you a chance to explain this. I saw on Twitter um, someone was quoting you as saying in one of your podcasts that um, – you know, you need to measure the duration, distribution, and amount of the spike protein, and that the FDA never did this, and that someone did do a recent small sample study on this, and they actually found the spike protein still circulating five months from vaccination in the six people that were randomly picked. Could you describe this a little bit more, why it's important, and what it portends? So uh, I didn't just tweet that. I actually called up the team that had been doing those studies, and those are ongoing, by the way. Uh, so the, the this is, um, and I'm just pulling up, making sure I got the facts right, uh, that particular uh, set of documents. Uh, um, this is built on a prior publication that's currently out as a preprint. And I've linked that uh, on my website, and it's coming from the Bruce Patterson Group in Boston, which, in my opinion, has been at the absolute forefront of long COVID. And what they had observed was that there's a lot of crossover in symptoms between long COVID and this post-vaccination syndrome. And they started looking at that from a laboratory standpoint. And most recently, what they found is that um, and this is in the preprint uh, that those with symptoms of that are crossover to long COVID have retention of spike protein for long periods of time in a, I was talking about macrophage or monocytes before, in a special macrophage or monocyte population that's very activated that could potentially be causing inflammatory disease and for some reason, these cells, once they take up spike protein, that protein stays in those cells and they stay in an activated state for a very long period of time. So Bruce uh, Patterson group was inferring that this was the cause for the symptoms. So to test that, they analyzed whether or not there was uh, spike protein retained in atypical monocytes of the same category. This involves uh, flow cytometry. And uh, they wanted to test it in the control group, the people that didn't have these symptoms. And what they found was in six out of six that they tested, 
in just an initial screen. They all had retained uh, spike protein in their in these special uh, atypical monocyte or macrophage-like populations for six months. So the spike protein there is not circulating, but it's captured inside of cells that are involved in both innate and, and adaptive immune responses, inflammatory responses. And it's persisting there for long periods of time. And it seems to be causing these cells to remain in the body in an activated form for six months or more. This is, this is um, a, a highly unexpected finding. And uh, the meaning of this and how robust this is, is still being investigated. Mm. This was a preliminary screening test, and they were shocked that uh, of these people that didn't have uh, long COVID-like symptoms after vaccination, they still had this long persistence in these cells of six months or more. So the, this, this idea that the spike comes, it's expressed with the RNA, the RNA gets cut up, the spike gets degraded, it's, it's inactivated by the antibodies that are raised, um, the cells that are expressing it get killed, and it all goes away after you mount your immune response. That doesn't seem to be the case. There's, it's for some reason being retained and driving a cell population that's known to be involved in inflammatory disease. So and we don't know how long it's persisting. We don't know how long, but if, you, six if, months. if you're telling me you find it six months later, and that could that very well means it probably stays at least somewhat longer, we'll find out. So let me ask you the scariest question of this whole issue, which is as many side effects as have been reported and likely unreported, and it's historically high for a vaccine that we've approved, very much above the threshold of tolerance that we typically even approve to even offer it optionally, much less force it upon a society. But, you know, the understanding was most people don't seem to have problems, didn't have problems, or maybe some had very mild, typical, you know, malaise for a couple of days. But, you know, most people, okay, my parents got it and they were fine. But, okay, so you're you're done with it. You're, you're safe. Well, if the spike pr- protein is still there a long time later, doesn't that mean that you could potentially get some of these reactions, inflammatory reactions, autoimmune diseases, much later, like we seem to see in the animal trials with the SARS-1 clinical trials of those failed vaccines. Isn't that a concern? And furthermore, you've got this, this population of spike molecules being retained in this type of cell, inflammatory cell. And now we're talking about a third dose at six months when you already know that those are being are still in circulation. So that suggests that the protein that's there in trapped in those cells seems to be driving them to behave in unusual ways, but it's still there at a time when you're gonna give yet another dose. So that means you're gonna have even more of those cells that have even more of that spike protein. So is there gonna be a cumulative effect? This is, this, we're now living the consequences of the rushed rollout and the abbreviated, uh, long-term safety analysis, normally this stuff would get sorted out. Sure, Because sure. you would have had a couple of years of data, but 
we're we're again we're doing a mass rollout of an uncharacterized product for in terms of its long-term consequences. And, and as I'm talking to you now, I'm seeing CDC is coming out with new guidance that all school children, vaccinated or not, by the way, should wear masks this coming fall. I mean, we we thought we were done with it. I mean, when they say things that ludicrous, it, it really doesn't inspire confidence that they are entertaining these concerns, studying them, and ensuring that we are guaranteed that we don't have long-term effects from toxicity of a spike protein percolating in our body for a while, that we don't have antibody-dependent disease enhancement. I'm not very confident that they're studying that. If it doesn't happen, it will be thank, you know, thanks to chance, not because they seem to be studying it. This, this is very <laughs> concerning. Um, again, when they say things that, that we know to be just ludicrous – it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. And for these people like these Republicans now, one after another, putting out Al-Qaeda hostage videos um, saying, I support the vaccine. They're safe and effective. I got it. You should too. Hey, did you really sit down with someone like a Dr. Malone and go through this? Or, or are you just being 100% political? And I think we know the answer to that. And again, like it shouldn't, I, w- I want to stress folks, we're not saying that 100% this is for sure going to happen. But before this is offered, much less shoved on us, we should be no, it should be made clear 100%. It's not going to happen. The onus of proof is upon them. When we see an amalgamation of concerns from the science, from some of the data, from some of the observation of trends country by country. And they're like, well, Daniel, it doesn't prove, it doesn't prove we're all going to die. Well, yeah, but we have already seen more effects than you admitted to. We've already seen less efficacy proven than you've admitted to. And your answer is, hey, how about a third shot, folks? So this is utterly insane. Dr. Malone, where could people find more about you if they want to listen to more of your information? Where could they hear you and see some of your work? So the my Twitter account seems to have become dominant now. I used to post more on LinkedIn until I got shut down and then reactivated. <laughs> but uh, so I've lost kind of faith in, in uh, LinkedIn and LinkedIn still will censor posts. Uh, such as one of the recent Israeli uh, mag, uh, newspaper publications that I cross-posted. So Twitter right now seems to not be uh, um, censoring me in the same way, and that account can be found at at rwmalonemd. There are others that uh, apparently there's shadow accounts that have been set up using my name, but none of them have almost 150,000 followers. Yes. So, if That's you what go you on Twitter at, at at RW Malone MD with about 150,000 followers, I try to keep all of this information there as a stream. Uh, I'm unfortunately no one is collating this except for the CDC and the World Health Organization, and their pronouncements are always about four to six months behind the time, uh, and they're not they're not kind of leading indicators; they're lagging. So they will they put out what was what's consensus based on fully scrubbed data, and it's always lagging by about four or six months. And this is the case in every single outbreak I've been involved in. So if you want to, you know, be more like a stockbroker and look for leading indicators and look do do risk mitigation, um, 
then you might find it useful to find follow that Twitter that Twitter feed for breaking information. RW Malone MD, that's where you find everything for Dr. Malone. Thanks so much as always for such an in-depth conversation. We're really going to be drawing upon you in the coming days and weeks to sort this all out because no one else will. Their government certainly won't for us. Uh, folks, if you have any questions for Dr. Malone, you can always email me dharwitz at blazemedia.com and we'll discuss this in the coming days. Thank you, Dr. Malone. Thank you all for listening. Till tomorrow, God bless you all and we'll see you here back same time, same place. Thank you.